From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Caddick. Darts and Letters is a show for people who love ideas but hate snob culture. This GameStop story sure was fun while it lasted. To see that Reddit mob pump and dump a stock and stick it to those hedge fund sickos. But as we look back, let's take a look at the takes. They were, as they usually are, cringe. As the price of GME kept rising, we needed an explanation. Jimmy Kimmel had an idea. Maybe it's our old friend, Vladimir Putin. Thousand percent, because a bunch of amateur investors, maybe even some Russian disruptors who are part of a Reddit community called Wall Street Bets, decided to buy a bunch of GameStop stock and drive the plot price up and screw over the hedge fund guys who had shorted the stock. Now the hedge fund Russian guys- disruptors, they're always there to conveniently explain away any inconvenient fact. But the business press, their stance was mostly moral panic, like billionaire Lee Cooperman on CNBC. The reason the market is doing what it's doing is people are sitting at home getting the checks from the government, okay? And this fair share is a bullshit concept. It's just a way of attacking wealthy people. And, you know, I think it's inappropriate. We all got to work together and pull together. How dare these lazy, no good retail investors manipulate the stock market? That's our job. Of course, righteous indignation wasn't enough to stop this online mob. The stock kept going up and up and up and up. So the pundits tried something different, pleading. On MSNBC, they told us, you know, we should forget about all this posting and just go get a girlfriend. And ask yourself, would you be better off taking that one, two or three hours a day and working out, trying to form relationships with mentors, with romantic relationships, with people at work, getting great at something so you can be the person on the other side of the trade. The greatest loss in- This ridiculous pleading, of course, didn't work either. At the end of the day, when Wall Street is losing at the game, they have one tried and true method to get back up on top. Just change the rules of the game. So they put the squeeze on Robin Hood and Robin Hood obliged. They limited trades and now all this has just blown over. Everything is mostly back to normal. It was a roller coaster ride, but what to make of it? Let me ask you something. Let me ask you to put yourself back into that 2007-2008 mindset. Remember the banks and lenders that gambled with our economy and then left us holding the bag? Back then, man, we really needed something like this GME story. I guess a few years later, we got something similar. Occupy Wall Street. This was our response then. And Occupy had such rhetorical power. Unfortunately, it never really damaged the bottom line. Maybe it never really had a chance. But this, 
or at least the populist outrage driving it, does that have potential? To quote the financial journalist Matt Taibbi, could it be a updated and superior version of Occupy Wall Street? Today on Darts and Letters, was GameStop a populist blueprint or just self-interest and spectacle? I speak to the Kush bomb himself. Matt Chrisman is co-host of the podcast Chapo Trap House, and he tells us we're just talking about spectacle here, not something with true radical potential. The engine of all of the GameStop thing was not a concerted desire to see Wall Street brought down. It was the individual desire of people online to make money. That could never substitute for a truly egalitarian politics that's rooted in solidarity. James K. Galbraith is a titan of left-wing economics, and he's also got a thing or two to say about spectacle. That's what the stock market is all about. But politicians have made an unfortunate policy choice. They decided to embrace it and to make it so integral to how we prepare for retirement. Was it a deliberate effort to create a kind of um, capitalist and speculative ethos in a large part of the upper middle class? I think the answer to that is yes, it was. That was the entire point. It broke down social solidarity and created a world in which people's retirement was a matter of their own gambling over long periods of time. But first, there's a lot of reporting about this notorious sub, Wall Street bets. Look closely though, not much of that reporting actually interviews the Redditors, so we take you into the community itself. I talked to a pretty rich 19-year-old. Well, he could have been a lot richer if not for the backstabbing Robin Hood app. All that and more on Darts and Letters. Stay tuned. We need your support. If you like what we do, go to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters and chip in. This is a show that breaks down barriers between the exclusionary academic world of ideas and the wider world of everyone else. Each and every week, we bring you intellectuals of one type or another. Sometimes they're an activist. Sometimes they're a shit poster. Sometimes they're a high school student and a podcaster. All that plus the authoritative scholar. We're about ideas here. We believe ideas matter, and we talk about the ones that do. The ivory tower simply cannot be left to its own devices. We have to engage with it, get what we can out of it, and often hold it accountable. But that takes time, it takes research, and of course, it takes money. So we need you to support us on Patreon. Thank you so much to our two new patrons last week, Adam and Robert. And to everyone else, join us. Help us democratize the world of ideas. You can do that by going to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Patrons get early content and eventually exclusive bonus episodes. Okay, on with the show. Kareem Hummus is a senior at Riverside Brookfield High School in Chicago, Illinois. When I was in high school, I was a total nerd. Video games, that's mostly what I was about. 
how could I be the best at Final Fantasy XI? It was good times, and man, was I great at it. But Kareem, he has a very different obsession. He spends a lot of his time on Wall Street bets. And what he does there is research stocks. We call this DD, due diligence. So someone kind of presents their idea, and they say, hey, you know, this is my idea, but go do your own due diligence, you know? For the past couple of years, we've been seeing tons of those. I just read one today about Walmart. I mean, a lot of people consider that a pretty boring stock, but Wall Street Bets covers it. Specifically, you mentioned Nokia. I mean, Nokia was, I mean, if you think about it, it's like stock from the 90s. Why is it coming back? Uh, a lot of people on Wall Street Bets are saying, I mean, it's great for the 5G. I mean, they got partnerships. So yeah, I think you can find amazing information on pretty much every company you've ever heard of on Wall Street Bets. Somebody's always talking about it, which is just amazing. The community is not exactly what it's been advertised to be. It's a little bit like a funnier and more democratic CNBC. People do real research there, like actual intellectual work. I'm, I'm serious. Even if it is crass, sometimes sloppy, and often a little batshit. Because a lot of the people there are just there to have a good time. Have you heard of Irony Man? Uh, he's a user on Reddit. No, I haven't. Irony Man. So this guy's hilarious. This was a couple months ago, I want to say, maybe like nine months ago. So this guy makes a huge post. Uh, he's talking about how he thinks he like found the way to beat the stock market. He was posting box spreads, which are like really advanced bets. And he was like, there's no way this doesn't work. The second the market opens, he loses $250,000. Oh, no. <laughs> Everybody in the comments. So, I mean, it's a supportive community. Everyone's kind of telling him, hey, you know, this isn't going to work the way you think it's going to work. But it's too late for him. So... I hope that these are people that like sort of have a little bit of money and are just like now homeless, right? Like, like <laughs> to lose that much must suck. But I would assume that that they have they have means. Then this guy did not. I'll say that. Oh no! So due to his bet, Robinhood actually banned box spreads from their whole platform because of this guy. What is a box spread? So it's really complex. You can make bets based on the market direction. So this guy made multiple bets going into different directions and different dates, and everything just kind of didn't work though for him. <laughs> And when something like that happens, do people like laugh or what do they do? Like, oh, so sorry, man. Like, what's the attitude? Yeah, people love it. Um, they love it? <laughs> yeah, so it's called lost porn. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, so you've gained porn, lost porn. And people love both of them equally. Uh, you get upvotes on both. Uh, you saw Deep Fucking Value. Uh, I did, saw, yeah. Right? Roaring Kitty. Yeah, yeah, so he had around $50,000 invested in GameStop pretty early on. So he had a lot of shares, but he also had a lot of these bets, these call options. So he was betting GameStop would go up to a certain price by a certain date. And as we saw, his account value was worth something like $55 million recently. How do you go from 50000 to $55 million? I mean, you got to take really risky positions with these bets, but it can pay off. Yeah, wow. I feel like there's a lot of talk about what Wall Street bets is like politically and what it means. You know, some people think that it has some sort of like radical populist potential and others think that it's like a kind of a threat to financial order or whatever. Like what what would you say is kind of the, the true politics of uh, Wall Street bets? Wall Street bets hates politics. And you'll never see anyone talking about politics on Wall Street bets. At the end of the day, people just want to make money. They don't really care what's going on. But this recent uh, situation with GameStop, with AMC, with Nokia, I mean, you're seeing like these hedge funds get scared and the media starting to pick up on these shady tactics uh, that the hedge funds are using. So I think this could really strike like a, a financial revolution here, all because of Reddit, all because of Wall Street bets. What do you mean? What would that look like? Yeah, so the hedge funds hate retail players. So retail players are just me, you, anybody who just can open an account now. So for instance, the pattern day trade rule, they created that back in like, I think 2001. 
because they didn't want people trading too much. Now you can only trade three times a week, buying and selling the same security on the same day. Or for example, account limits or margin limits. You can only borrow so much money or you can only borrow money if you have a certain amount in your account. Uh, special orders. You have to buy a certain way. They don't let you buy certain other ways because that would be too powerful for the retail. And they say they're doing this to protect retail, but now we're seeing like uh, Robinhood CEO and Webull CEO are trying to disassemble these systems that are holding retail back and the hedge funds are getting scared. Why would they want to hold back retail? Right, because retail is unpredictable, but we're so strong. As you saw here, I mean, retail is all over the place. I mean, we're investing in hundreds of companies, but when everybody's kind of staring at GameStop here, I mean, we saw what happened to the price. When everybody can kind of focus in on one thing, you can see great returns. And the hedge funds don't like that unpredictability. They like to trade by their own rules. They set the rules and they can squeeze stocks. They can do what they don't want you to do, basically. Exactly. Everything's hidden behind these closed doors. So do you think that like the community really wants to take on the hedge funds because of some like left political reason? Like I've seen someone describe Wall Street bets as a kind of like digital Occupy, you know, digital Occupy Wall Street. Does it have that kind of politics or, or is it just about getting the bag? Yeah, so recently we've heard that talk kind of come up the past week or two, but it's going to go away. I mean, at the end of the day, everyone here just wants to make money, hedge funds, retail, especially Wall Street bets. I mean, that's all they want. They just want to have a good time, make some money. <laughs> if it means they can kind of stick it to the hedge funds, hey, why not? So how did it begin for GameStop for you? When, when, did, you, when did you buy in and why? Yeah, so I read this amazing post on Wall Street bets, and this guy was saying, hey, you know, this company's undervalued. They had a market cap of like $300 million. They were doing sales of in the billions growing e-commerce, they had Ryan Cohen, new board, everything. So I got in back in September, uh, late September. I got in when the price was around $9 a share, which is very cheap looking back now. Yeah, I was thinking about that. Like people compare it to like Blockbuster, you know, and a lot of, um, I can't remember the last time, like I bought a few games over the last year and they've I've bought them all from the PlayStation store. So w what does that mean for GameStop? How can GameStop be undervalued in that in that context? Yeah, so this, this is actually two different questions here. So mm -hmm. the first thing is um, these hedge funds uh, prey on these stocks like GameStop and like other things, and they force the price down, right? right? They manipulate it downwards. Why? Because nobody can stop them. They're too powerful. Um, they've caused hundreds of businesses to go out of business, even though they had good revenues. So when GameStop started getting a better board, um, they started getting Ryan Cohen specifically. He, had a, he outlined a plan. He was going to move into e-commerce. He was going to move into uh, virtual reality, esports. The hedge funds didn't readjust. So we started seeing retail pour in. We took the stock price from $9 to $20 all naturally. And the other thing is GameStop's been growing. Uh, we're seeing them close doors, which may seem like a bad thing, but they're cutting overhead. So when it's at $20, just sort of naturally, this is not just like $20 because of memes. This is $20 because you think there's value. When does it become kind of like a coordinated effort to bring it up? GameStop, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Rod Alsman. This no. guy's been investing in GameStop since, I think, 2017. Mm -hmm. uh, so he's got him and a ton of buddies. They outline GameStop's price target, and they say it's worth $180, and that's super conservative. Um, as you saw on Wall Street Bets, some people are saying it's worth $10,000, $20,000. How could it possibly be worth that much? It'd be one of the most valuable companies in the world if it were, it were at that price per share, wouldn't it? This $20,000 per share could only happen during a short squeeze, which is what Wall Street Bets was trying to initiate here. Is that the thing where it's sort of like... Uh, snowballs when all the people that have been shorting it need to buy the stock to cover their their losses or whatever. Is that do I have that right? Yeah, you got it exactly right. So their brokerages will call them and they'll say, "Hey, you owe us a ton of money. You need to buy GameStop, no matter the price." Mm. So they buy back in, and that causes other short sellers to buy back in. So, like you said, it snowballs up. We saw the same thing with Volkswagen back in around two thousand eight. 
stock price went from like about $100 to $1,000 per share. So how does the community start to push it up? Around the $40 mark, we start to realize, hey, I mean, these shorts are just screwed. I mean, there's, they can't get out of this. So back at the $10 range, we were saying, hey, GameStop's an undervalued company. I mean, there's growth potential here. But now as we're getting closer to the $40 range, we're thinking, what if there's a short squeeze here? And we can take GameStop up to $100 a share. I mean, we thought that'd be amazing. And where were you at at this point? How much had you, you said you started with, with 4K. Did you plow all that into GameStop? In beginning of September, I think I bought 10 shares of GameStop at $10 each. So really not that much. But by the time November hit, I put more money into my account. So now I had about $6,000 and all of it was in GameStop shares and calls. I was basically betting that GameStop went up by January. So you put 6000 at, would you say that was around $40? I think my average cost there was $17. Okay, wow. That's not so bad. Okay, so when does it start to like get up there? Like, like I don't have the chart in front of me, but did it go from 40 to all of a sudden or how? Like chart that course for me. Right. So we're, we're trading about $20 a share around like uh, January, maybe 8th. Mm-hmm. And then by January 14th, we started climbing. We're doing good. And we're all the way up to $40 a share. And people are getting excited. At this point, we're starting to see the media talk about it a little bit, some whispers, but it's still mainly Wall Street bets. Then we jumped from $40 to $65 in one night. And that was just crazy. Because, I mean, we thought we couldn't get there, right? People were saying the short squeeze already happened at 65 at this point. They're saying, this is the short squeeze. And at this point, the, the media starts hopping on and we're seeing uh, like CNBC, CNN, everybody's talking about, hey, what's up with GameStop? It's gone up 10 times its uh, valuation in just a couple months. So once we get to the 65 range, we start to see celebrities hopping in here and Elon Musk even tweets about us. So we quickly go from $65 all the way up to $180. And then Elon's tweet takes us up all the way close to uh, like $250 overnight. He said like game stonks. Was that, was that what it was? Yeah, yeah. He just says this, the phrase game stonk and he links Wall Street bets. <laughs> So does that mean basically like as soon as he tweets, does like, what do you see on the sub? Instantly, everybody was talking about Elon Musk. There was memes being posted almost within minutes. <laughs> I mean, we just knew it was going to be a good time. Uh, Elon Musk even came onto uh, Discord. I'm not sure if we're familiar with that. I am. Yeah. I didn't know that he, that he went into the, in, a, in like a Wall Street Bets Discord. He went into the Wall Street Bets Discord before it got deactivated. Discord actually took it down for hate speech. People are a little sus of that. But yeah, Elon Musk was just talking to the community. What do they mean, hate speech? What, what have you seen in terms of that? Yeah, so that actually brings up a really interesting question. A lot of people don't like Wall Street bets because uh, of the frequent use of the R word or the F word or uh, just swears in general. But I, I really don't see it that way. Well, like who who is being called the R word or the F word? You know what I mean? Like, is it hate speech or is it just that people are have like dirty language? I don't really understand. Like, what's the hate speech part of it? I don't think there's any hate at all. I think we're very... um misunderstood here almost. Uh, so the R word does get thrown around a lot, but it's both the people who make crazy gains and people who make crazy losses. DFV, deep fucking value, he was called the R word numerous times. You can see what happened with him. I mean, he went crazy. I saw him on Wall Street Journal, but what do you mean he went crazy? Right, so again, he turned $50,000 to $50 million. Yeah. That's unheard of. With one stock, just holding it. What is he at now? <laughs> Not $50 million. <laughs> He's probably closer to like $22 million. <laughs> That's not so bad. Okay, so it's going kind of wild at Musk tweet. We're up to about, what did you say, like 220 after that tweet? Yeah, so we're at 220. Um, and now everybody's talking about it. I mean, my mom came up to me and she was talking about it. So I was very, very happy with that. Um, and at that point, we just start rocketing. Every day we're getting you know 50% gains, 80% gains sometimes. And we hit all the way up to $500 a share. So at the peak, 
where are you at with the 6K you, you put in, 6K-ish? How much did, did you have? So at the peak, I was just a tad bit under $200,000 per share. Or sorry, not per share, a total account value, which is a pretty nice sum. Not too fucking bad for a, uh, <laughs> a high school senior. It's not enough though. Robinhood stole it all from us. I'm sure you saw the news. <laughs> yeah, what happened there? Yeah, so we're sitting at $500 a share. And Robinhood, that fateful morning, uh, it's not even Robinhood's fault, but Robinhood decides to close down buying, meaning you can't buy any more shares of GameStop, mm-hmm. which just kills all the momentum on the spot. And instantly, that day, I think we hit $112 a share. When did you uh, sell out? Yeah, so I was still under the impression that, uh, hey, you know what? Maybe we still can get this momentum going. All the way up until, I think, uh, Monday of this week. So unfortunately, I sold at something like $98 per share, which isn't bad. I ended up with around 30K. 30 well, that's not too bad either. And you got a, you got a wild ride out of it too. <laughs> I got very lucky. I bought in uh, under $20 a share for most of my shares. Some of these guys though bought in above $400 per share. So they just watched instantly overnight their portfolio lose 75% of its value. So these guys, we call them bag holders, you know, because they're holding this huge bag of worthless shares <sighs> now. Oh no, I feel for them. I feel for them. What are some like the biggest losses that you saw on, on, uh, on the sub? Because people post their... Uh, they're like um, brokerage accounts, right? Like screen grabs? Yeah, a lot of them are fake, uh, but they've cracked down on that recently. I wondered about that, yeah. How can you tell? Yeah, so there's a big controversy. There used to be a guy named WSB God. WSB, of course, short for uh, Wall Street Bets. And he had a paper trading account. He was just trading with fake money. Um, And he kind of convinced the whole sub that this was real and he was making millions of dollars. He traded his way up from a couple thousand to like a million dollars. He was on the mod team too. And he completely duped the whole sub. So now we've gotten a lot better with that. Um, and we don't really see that much paper accounts anymore. But I don't think anybody's lost more than deep fucking value. Uh, again, he went from 50 million to 22 million, just like that. Well, he was the guy that really like early days was doing a lot of pushing of GameStop, right? But he, but he thought it was a value play too, right? I mean, deep fucking value is his name, right? Yeah, exactly. The thing is though, he didn't push it at all. If you oh. look through his comment history or post history, all he does... Uh, once a week or once a month. Recently, it's been once a day. He'll just post a, a picture of his account. That's all. Occasionally, he'll send a, a GIF or like a one word or two word. So how do you feel about where you uh, where you left it? It's obviously very good. Uh, I don't think you could really complain that much, but it could have been a lot better. I, don't, if, I think if Robinhood didn't stop us where they stopped us around $400 a share, I think we would have gotten that short squeeze. And I think we could have gone all the way up to a couple thousand per share. What would you have done with the money? Yeah, so if that happened, I'd be a millionaire, which is crazy to think about going from 5,000 to a millionaire. Obviously, the first thought is college. Is that part of why you were doing it? Yeah, I mean, college is definitely cool, but I was just doing this because it's fun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no one on Wall Street Bets is really there making their living on Wall Street Bets. I'm sure there's some people, but we're just here to have a good time. Was it fun for you? Uh, it was very fun. Every night, um, I'm, I'm with uh, about 60 friends. We're in a group chat. Every night and every morning, we'd wake up early, stay up late, just talking about GameStop, <laughs> sending memes, laughing. I don't know, man. I feel I would feel so uh, nervous and like on the edge of my seat and anxious about it, especially if I'm one of those guys that's YOLOing it, right? Like if it's life savings territory. I mean, you're 19, so it's a little different. But like, I don't know, some of those other guys, I don't know if I could hack it. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. There's been a couple funny stories. Um, one guy uh, took his dad's retirement, oh, no. everything, and put it into GameStop. He got him pretty early, so I'm, I'm sure he's doing okay now. But uh, um, he said he's either going to be living in the Hamptons or the sewers. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
Um, did he tell his dad? Like, what? How did he get it? <laughs> I really hope it was fake, but I don't think it was. So let's hope he's doing okay. Um, another guy took out loans. A lot, I know a lot of people who took out loans, $10,000, $20,000, $30,000 loans. Just put it all into GameStop. Yeah, you know, I, I saw a couple articles where they were quoting folks that like were trying to pay down like medical debt, student debt, that sort of stuff. Like, it's hard for me to figure out what exactly the kind of economic bracket of Wall Street bets is. Are we talking about mostly like people that have money to play with and are just fucking around, or are we talking about a lot of people that are maybe not so well off and and are just trying trying their best? I mean, you see it all, honestly, uh, especially recently. If you post a, a picture and it's like, this is all my life savings, you know, I need this money to survive, people in the comments will tell you, hey, you know, maybe this isn't such a great idea. You should care for yourself. You know, I mean, Wall Street Bets is a really supportive community. And uh, I mean, they just want to have fun, but they don't want anyone to get hurt either. That's encouraging to hear. What about you? Did, did you need the money? Or was this, you're going to be okay in terms of affording college? I'll say it, was, it would definitely be nice. It would definitely help with the student loans. Like right now, I think I have $95 in my bank account. So if this went wrong, this could have gone very wrong. But you still have like the 30K-ish of GameStop. I guess you sold out, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I got to pay taxes on that, obviously. But yeah, it should be nice. Oh, it's a nice little uh, chunk to to play with. Are you going to keep it in there and keep investing and keep doing that wild ride? Or are you going to just kind of, you know, do the uh, responsible thing and put it in an index fund or whatever? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll say this is definitely not investing. Um, we're always <laughs> looking for the next play here. I'm <laughs> um, always got to stay reading. Really? You're not going to take out a, a little bit, at least have like a little bit of a nest, not nest egg, obviously, but just like a little bit of, to have some security? Yeah, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, though, I mean, 27,000 isn't that much. I mean, sure, it can help you a lot, but we're really going for the, we're going for the moon here. That was Kareem Hummus, a 19-year-old high school senior who spends too much time on Wall Street bets. But hey, 19-year-old Gordon never had 30 grand in the bank. For a certain kind of person, Matt Chrisman needs no introduction. But maybe you're not the dirtbag leftist I am, so I guess it's still my job to give you the introduction. Matt is co-host of the enormously popular Chapo Trap House. It is a hilarious, profane, and super online left-wing podcast. But Matt seems to be going through something. Maybe it's a kind of midlife crisis, because on the show and on his Twitch streams, he's been going on and on about how our politics is just pure spectacle, like this whole GameStop thing. Ordinary people just seem so utterly powerless. They can't change the material conditions of this society, so posting is all they got. But as the notifications incessantly ring, Matt is doing this really introspective poster's lament. And I think we should all listen to it. Regardless of where we fall on the ideological spectrum, we should ask ourselves, what are we really doing here? Whether it's your Twitter the subreddit, or the academic journal that you publish in, this capital D discourse, is it really politics? I never really felt like I was doing real politics, I guess you could say. I always tried to stress that 
to myself and then once Chapo started to people listening that posting isn't politics and that listening to a podcast isn't politics, that entertainment consumption are, is not politics. But at the same time, if, if you feel like there's no real avenue to do politics, that thought you might have at the top of your head to reassure you that you're not wasting your time, it very well might be masking a deeper desire to see the easiest way out of that paradox, which is to fantasize your way into thinking that you are doing politics with your posts. And I guess eventually got to a point where it was no longer sustainable. And so I had to take apart my whole posting ethos and look at it uh, piece by piece to see what was driving hmm. the whole thing. What examples of like kind of posting politics stand out for you as the sort of most spectacular and and devoid from sort of actual political agency. I mean, all of it. I, I don't. I don't know if you can really <laughs> say any of it is more or less. I mean, the delusion, the emotional weight that you give it might vary, and that might make the distance between what you're doing and what you think you're doing greater or less. But the actual acts are, I think, equally meaningless. I mean, it's all a subjective delusion. Well, what do you make of the whole uh, GameStop story? It's what we gave instead of politics. It's people coming together in what feels in the moment like solidarity, that feels in the moment like a challenge to power, but which is fully structured by atomization and uh, by the profit motive. I mean, the engine of all of the GameStop thing was not a concerted desire to see Wall Street brought down. It was the individual desire of people online to make money at the expense of people who deserve to have the money taken from them, certainly. But that could never substitute for a truly egalitarian politics that's rooted in solidarity. But because that's not a thing that people have any experience with uh, in their lives, it's to be expected that they will not be able to necessarily distinguish these things. And considering also how grim the situation looks and how how uh, limited the political avenues are, there's a huge incentive to to want to make all of these things more transgressive, more subversive, more threatening to power than they actually are. Why do you think that is? Because people want to feel that there's hope. People want to feel that, that there are avenues for change. And the best way to feel that is to see examples of it in the world. And since the way we view the world is largely through the mediated prism of online, what happens there is going to get a lot of our emotional attention. And, and we're going to be incentivized significantly to see what maybe isn't there just so that we can keep going. Or if we're a member of the takeocracy so that we can maintain a narrative of progress that we can imagine that we're part of and that our audience is a part of. Is there any way to like harness that kind of energy and and then harness it into something that's like actually egalitarian and politically like efficacious or ought we just sort of reject those kind of posting online impulses completely and sort of ground ourselves in something different? I don't think it's realistic to tell anybody to stop posting considering how constitutive that is of our lives at this point. My real belief is that the politics that have to be reborn to replace the dead politics of the moment are going to be reborn in struggle, in, in daily life. And that will involve the internet because the internet is how many of us view the world outside of our immediate sphere, which means that even in our own 
cities were likely only to encounter news of, of changing circumstances or events through engagement with the internet. But if it's going to turn into anything, if we're going to build a politics to replace the, the dead ones, then the internet will be instrumental to that only as a way to link people to each other in real life. And the thing to avoid while waiting for that moment to happen, <laughs> while waiting to see the shoots around you, is to not necessarily get offline, because as I said, that's asking a lot, but to realign your emotional relationship to the discourse around abstract questions that I truly believe cannot be part of any meaningful politics. It's in fact the opposite of that. Abstract questions like like what? Like how to deal with like identity politics and sort of class-based politics on the left or like all these sort of insular kind of ideological debates? Is, is that what you mean? What, what exactly do you mean by it? Any question that assumes a movement, like a coherent left to execute a policy based on the resolution of those questions is by definition beside the point because no such mechanism, no such organization exists. Right. Yeah, that makes total sense. There's mountains of like academic research that points to the fact that like ordinary people have such little influence in, in actual policy decisions. So that gap is so, so wide. Yeah. I'm curious to what what that might look like for you personally, like just from where I'm coming from, like I wish I was more more of a sort of engaged activist part of actual movements that were pushing politics maybe at a local level or the institutions that I'm part of, but I just don't do it probably because I'm selfish because it takes you know real costs and doesn't get the kind of attention that you know, posting can. How, how do you think that you're going to navigate that? Where do you think your politics are going to go? I mean, I don't know. Uh, I'm in the process of sort of winnowing down what I think my contribution to the eco media ecosystem can be that is positive, that contributes more light than heat. And it's it's much less about questions of the political process, electoral politics, or even theoretical politics as much as it is history and also sort of the sociological and psychological terrain that compel us to reify this spectacle politics instead of doing the work around us. What that means for me politically is that I don't know <laughs> because I am at the moment very cut off from anything around me, as many of us are. The urge I have to be a politically uh, efficacious person, to live a politics that is emancipatory for me and everyone else is very much limited. And so what I have instead is time to refine my emotional response, the clarity of my own vision, so that when I am able to interact with the world, I can do it with a clarity that will allow me to act from my best instincts and not my worst ones. I got the sense too, like listening to the show, as part of the the Bernie campaign, that there was like an enthusiasm, like when when you folks like actually sort of went door to door, that was kind of that was kind of infectious. I'm wondering if that is sort of part of this story. Like, is it is it kind of a post Bernie letdown that is kind of leading you to this to this point? How, how do you figure that into this story? 
when we were in knocking doors for Bernie in the primaries, I mean, I felt something I never felt before. And what it was, was I thought I was going to be able to have my cake and eat it too. I thought I was going to be able to continue to do a job that was fun and easy and pleasurable and non-alienated and also make the world a better place. Also contribute to uh, a political shift that will make the lives of Americans and people around the world materially better. And who wouldn't want to believe that? I think that that belief powered a lot of people into the Bernie campaign, and they did their best. I, I believe that the most of the majority of people uh, who worked with the Bernie campaign were, were operating out of a genuine desire to help, but also a, 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 a belief that it could be this easy. I mean, obviously it wasn't easy, but it certainly uh, would have been easier than what we're going to have to do. <laughs> and it was the failure of that campaign that really made me and a lot of other people have to come to terms with the reality of the struggle that we're having to, to deal with. Because, I mean, for myself, I never really had any illusions that Bernie was going to, uh, by himself, by being elected, bring about even social democracy, let alone socialism, just that his presidency could sharpen the underlying class conflict that is masked by our spectacular politics and create new formations of mobilization to press against capitalism. I'm curious about the show and where where you think it will go, given this space and this kind of realization of yours in terms of the limits of posting. What do you want it to be, given that that realization of yours? My hope, and I, 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 and everyone is on the same page right now on this, is that we are all in agreement that politics is is not really here right now, uh, and that we have to wean ourselves off of the of the commentary that we were doing and and the cheap psychological heat that we were able to generate by triangulating off of the news of the week. And as much as we do have a desire to consistently undermine the presentation of the Biden administration and the Democratic Party as any sort of champions for anyone other than the mon most monstrous elites of this country, uh, that we have to broaden our approach away from politics as such to culture, to history, things we've always done. But I think the current stalemate insists upon us doing that even more than we had. So that's, I think, what we're all looking to do. There's a sense in which I've been sort of as on board with your takes recently, but a little bit depressed by them because of the kind of uh, powerlessness that you sometimes kind of insist, if you know what mm -hmm. I mean. And not to get sort of self-righteous about it because I'm by no means like involved in sort of all of these activist struggles. I'm not in the labor movement or the anti-war movement or, you know, kind of the old school left. But I do sometimes like interview these people and they aren't as sort of despondent about the spectacularization of our kind of post-Bernie politics as I kind of get from you. I'm wondering if that might just be a direction, like kind of old school activist struggles in some sense or another. Like I'm, I'm certainly not joining them because of my own selfishness, but I feel like if I could, the powerlessness, we might not be so powerless if, if, if we, if we joined together. Yeah. No, that people take my, my opinions here as, as depressing because uh, it means if you take it seriously, what I'm saying, you're not allowed to pretend anymore 
that you are a political agent. And that means that if you want to be one, you have to risk. You have to suffer. And the people don't want to do that. If they do, I think they will very likely find that it's not nearly as depressing as they think about. And in fact, what seemed depressing is actually like the first step towards articulating an authentic self, maybe for the first time in our lives. That was Matt Chrisman, co-host of the podcast Chapo Trap House and Reluctant Poster. You can find those posts on Twitter at Kushbaum. James K. Galbraith is a big name in the world of left-leaning economics. That name, Galbraith, may seem familiar to you because John Kenneth Galbraith is perhaps the most famous economist to ever come out of this country, Canada. But James is not just his father's son. He is a titan in his own right. He is a leading scholar of inequality, a publicly engaged intellectual and policy advisor, a Bernie backer, and a vicious critic of mainstream economic thinking. This GameStop story, it just seemed like the perfect opportunity to connect, to talk about the stock market. What is it really, and why does it seem so disconnected from our real economy? The stock market has uh, these moments of, of madness, enough of a slight difference in the scene setting to amuse the wider public, but this is a phenomenon that dates back um, hundreds of years to the South Sea bubble, at least, or earlier to the tulip mania. There's nothing new under the sun in global finance, for sure. This There are some uh, interesting, uh, let's say, side notes that occasionally get introduced into the into the melody. So understanding that that history, that context, I'm wondering how you make sense of the sort of hot takes of today. Like, if I can crudely summarize, the sense I get is there are folks, this is probably most descriptive of me, who just find it a little bit funny. And then there are folks who see kind of the radical potential and see this as a kind of populist moment. And then there's a kind of moral panic about how this is a Trumpist kind of attack on the integrity of our financial system and involves on what <laughs> on the integrity of the financial system. <laughs> Everyone has that. That's the funniest line I've heard in a long time. I mean, what integrity? <laughs> the financial system's rotten to the core and has been. Uh, you know, anybody who was around and you know alive and 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 breathing th- in, in two thousand seven, which is only what fourteen years ago, was aware of it. Um, it wasn't the stock market; it was a real estate market. But the, the general abuse of the financial system is what the financial system is set up to do. How do you compare? the folks on Wall Street bets to hedge funds in general? Are they doing similar or different things? Well, that's what hedge funds do, is they're pools of financial capital that are run by people who do this for a living, who take a a decent slice out of the gains, and uh, who play with all kinds of assets. In this case, you had hedge funds who were deciding that they were going to um, short the stock of a company, a brick-and-mortar electronic games company that they thought probably didn't have a long-term future. And uh, they got caught in a squeeze that was organized online by a group 
and what was, was essentially the novel phenomenon here was the coordinated activity, uh, online activity of a group of day traders who are by no means the lumpen proletariat of the world. They're people with money, not mega money, but enough money to, to and, and time to play around with this kind of thing. And they effectively squeezed the hedge funds because when you're when you're in a short position, as to say, you've borrowed stock and you've sold it and then you have to buy it back. Price goes up, your losses are potentially unlimited. And they drove the price very high and managed to inflict some severe losses, which of course gives all the rest of us who are not hedge fund people a certain amount of what is known in German as Schadenfreude, you know, which I have to say is probably the major social benefit from the whole episode. That's that's exactly how I'm feeling too. But there is a more serious lesson here, I guess. And one of the things you just said is something about tulips, and I have no idea what you're talking about. So what are some of the historical uh, episodes that are worth kind of bringing to light? Well, uh, the tulip mania was in Holland in the 1600s, and uh, there was a speculative boom in the purchase and sale of tulip bulbs, uh, which were then a novelty. One can fast forward in through myriad episodes in the 19th century to the 1920s, a, a bubble in Florida real estate, which was basically the purchase and sale of what were called binders, which were claims on the capital gains on largely fictitious property development in the scrub of central Florida. And then in the stock market, which was largely borrowing purchases of, of stock based on what's called margin, which is say you borrow from your broker in order to finance the sale. And that drives the price up until until it stops, at which point people were wiped out in massive numbers and the economy was plunged into a depression. It seems unlikely that an episode as tangential and peripheral as the GameStop episode is going to cause the whole stock market to tank. And obviously now that the episode seems to fade, the market seems to have stabilized. But it is a sign of how radically unstable the whole situation can be. How many more of these uh, little episodes we'll see? It may be a coming thing, and we may see that that this is the harbinger of a new period of of real instability in the stock market. The stock market is intrinsically an unstable thing. That's in the nature of it. It's a a market for the control of existing companies uh, and uh, based upon the expectations of uh, people who have large uh, funds at their disposal. And what they do is they're, they're, they're partly on the basis of what they think is going to happen to the company and partly what they think other investors are going to do. And that second thing can be very volatile. So what role do you think ought it play in our economy? It seems to have become so central to people's retirement savings and such a kind of real part of at least not everyone's finances, but what role should the stock market play in our wider economy? Well, the stock market is a way in which new companies launch themselves. Initially, a new company is probably mostly uh, financed by venture capitalists uh, and by bank loans. But at a certain point, a company is established enough that it can make an offering to the general public. And at that point, it can raise a certain amount of money from the stock market. After that, by and large, the stock market plays a very small role in the financing of companies. It's a control game. Obviously, if you bought Amazon uh, in 1997, you're doing pretty well. On the other hand, if you left your funds in the old economy, 
<laughs> you know, you're only doing at best average. Um, so it's a part of people's retirement, but only in a very selective way uh, in the sense that, uh, first of all, most people don't have any significant funds in the stock market. And secondly, those that do, uh, the, the distribution of those returns is extremely variable. And, and so it's not by any means an assured way to have a secure retirement. If you want to have a secure retirement, the most important thing for an American is the Social Security system. And the second most important thing is to have a pension benefit, which, of course, has declined radically in recent years. So how did the, the stock market become such a big part of people's retirement plans? I mean, it seems kind of like a policy choice to step away from the kind of pension model that you're describing to oh it definitely was yeah it was it was something that accelerated in the early 1980s in the Reagan administration here and uh, was and tax benefits associated with putting uh, away funds which you then can control and you could put some in stocks or bonds or whatever which people with means and, and the ability to build those accounts did was it a deliberate effort to create a kind of um, capitalist and speculative ethos in a large part of the upper middle class I think the answer to that is yes it was that was the entire point it broke down social solidarity and created a world in which people's retirement was you know a matter of their own gambling over long periods of time and from a you know broader social standpoint, that is um, it's polarizing. It separates out those people who have that uh, from people who are, are relying on the Social Security Act, which was enacted in the 1930s under an entirely different spirit, and which is still, for most uh, citizens of this country, the pillar of their retirement security, Social Security plus the health insurance they get from Medicare. One thing I think people have been starting to see more and more is the stark difference between how the market is doing during this pandemic versus how the rest of the economy is doing during this pandemic. I want to ask you more about that kind of the way in which the Federal Reserve, the way in which fiscal policy just came right to the market and really saved it. It seems to me like, you know, we bicker over these sort of $2,000 checks and there's so much inaction in terms of healthcare policy or sort of you name it, mm -hmm. but the extent of action to prop up the market seems sort of tremendous. And I'm wondering if you can kind of run down in a little bit more detail about what exactly the government has done to secure those markets. Very early, you could see that the priority of the Trump administration was to prevent the pandemic from having a, a, a really drastic effect on existing major corporations. Trump was even concerned about the cruise lines, uh, but the Remember airlines that, yeah. are an example there. They, by and large, they were grounded uh, and their revenues went away, uh, but uh, uh, preserving them in being so that they could be there when the pandemic was over was a major priority and what could go down the list of things uh, that uh, were in that category. There were large parts of the services sector uh, that uh, uh, were um, immediately and deeply uh, affected by the crisis, um, both big businesses and small. And the big ones got a lot of help. This was partly, as I said, through the, the, the uh, there's 400 or so billion uh, that was allocated to the Treasury, and then the Federal Reserve was able to leverage that. And, and they also purchased, I think, a lot of fossil fuel because these companies are also being hit by a diminution of commuting, diminution of oil sales, collapse in the oil price. So it was an effort to maintain the financial structure that existed pre-pandemic. 
on the assumption that that financial structure will be the you know valid in the post-pandemic period, which I think is a very implausible assumption. That things are definitely going to be different going forward. People are not going to be traveling as much. It's very hard for me to see, for example, how why anybody would buy any substantial number of new commercial aircraft uh, in the post-crisis. You want a commercial aircraft, there's lots of very good ones sitting unused. Those are the kinds of things that are going to change going forward. But the initial instinct of the government was to just to freeze everything in place and to prevent the recognition of those changes. Why do you think it's so easy to get this kind of policy and and I don't know all the details of all the various instruments, but like negative interest rates, quantitative easing, bond purchases. It seems like the scale of the interventions, at least on that side, seems so great. Whereas some of the sort of more policy-oriented fixes of like fixing our healthcare system and those sorts of things are much more contentious in a way. Why, why do you think there's that kind of divide? It's very easy. The question is who can pick up the phone and reach the decision makers? And the leaders of the large corporations can certainly do that. They were gathered around immediately saying, this is what we need. Uh, and they had the attention. I mean, if you're a major bank, they sit on the federal on the boards of the regional Federal Reserve banks and they can pick up the phone to the chairman or to the you know to anybody and in, in significant in the Federal Reserve in order to help stable you know what was for them stabilizing the system, which is to say stabilizing their own their own financial positions. So it's not a surprise. Whereas the broad public is a very amorphous and not very well organized entity, and that uh, is much harder. And if you're talking about healthcare, well, if you want to put together a, a national health insurance program, you've got organized entities and it's called health insurance companies that are on the other side of that position. And they're, they're, they're certainly very able to both be heard and to they have, as all these entities do, plenty of financial muscle that they can put into the political process. That's how the country is governed. I actually wanted to ask you a question. It's a slight curveball, but I saw some videos uh, some interviews that you gave shortly after the, I think it was shortly after the financial crisis, and you really took the economics profession to task for being insular, tribalistic, uh, dogmatic, ideological, and and really missing things in a big way. I'm wondering in what way it has changed, if at all, <laughs> since sort of those days post-crisis. What, what does the economics profession look like? Has it heard some of your criticisms? Uh, and, and no, <laughs> I stand by every one of my criticisms. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting, we're now many, quite a few years, almost 14 years after the start of the of the last great crisis, uh, which the economic profession completely did not anticipate, did not understand. Has anybody who did understand it uh, been given a senior appointment at any of the so-called top economics departments of the United States, not to my knowledge, uh, or in the United Kingdom either. So it's really an extraordinary situation in which everybody who, whose record was vindicated by having warned in advance, uh, and there are quite a number of people still out there on basically on the fringes, uh, are the senior economists uh, who are policy advisors somewhat more have they changed their views a little bit for the compared to 2009? Yeah, maybe they have, or at least they're in line with what needs to be done. So I'm glad to see that. But in terms of the actual underlying economic theory, no. The profession has really made itself intellectually irrelevant. That's not going to change, I think, until we have 
new generations of economists and an academic culture that's willing to welcome and foster them rather than exclude them. What is exactly this sort of prevailing economic thought now to the extent that that you can generalize? I guess you're saying you really can generalize. I think you can characterize. Uh, there's a kind of a an internal, almost a false debate in mainstream economics between the free market school, uh, which was Chicago-based uh, and which has basically lost credibility, but says that everything is self-regulating. Well, plainly nothing is self-regulating. Your, your, your blood pressure isn't self-regulating. Your car engine isn't self-regulating. Nuclear reactors aren't self-regulating. Financial markets are certainly not self-regulating. And then there's a, another group which says that the problem here is that things are are sticky. Wages are sticky. Prices are sticky. Expectations are sticky, this kind of thing. Between the two of them, they manage to talk back and forth, but they really don't get to the fundamental problem, which is that the world is organized under this economics under the same principles as physics and biology. And there, you know, you need resources, you need, you need investment to deal with those resources. Uh, but the more you build up, the more fragile your system is. You, the bigger your reactor, the worse the risk of a, of a meltdown. The bigger your dam, the bigger the damage if this collapse. The bigger your economy, the more efficient it is, the bigger your banks, but the more danger you have when they, when they fail. That's a dilemma from which there is no escape. You don't want to make everything small because then you don't have any complexity or any, you know, you can't maintain an advanced society. But you need to have effective regulation to do things properly. And that requires something which is outside of the purview of the market and able to supervise it. To me, that's the really essence between a truly advanced society and one which is not. Uh, the problem of in the rest of the world is not that people can't get educated or that you can't put technology there. But if you can't regulate the environmental conditions, working conditions, wages, then the society is going to be unstable, unequal, impoverished, dangerous in various ways. That was James K. Galbraith, professor at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas in Austin. James is author of several books on political economy, including most recently, The End of Normal, the Great Crisis and the Future of Growth. You can find that and other work of our guests on the show page. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. Our lead producer is Jay Coburn, and our chase producer is Mark Apollonio. We have research from Addie Susnick and Dave Mosscrop. Our theme song and outro is composed by Mike Barber, and our graphic designer is Dakota Coop. I'm your host, Gordon Caddick. If you like what we do, you can support us on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. You'll find bonus and early content on the site. If you can't do that, at least do us this favor. Help the show get to more people. The best way you can do that is to share it with a friend or on your social media, but you can also rate and review darts and letters on wherever you find your podcasts. If you have feedback, tweet at us. My handle is at Gordon Caddick, or you can email the show directly at dartsandletterspod at gmail.com. We are always open to ideas. We receive funding from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. Our lead academic advisor is Professor Alan Sens at the University of British Columbia. Darts and Letters is made in two places, Toronto, Ontario, and Vancouver, British Columbia. Toronto is on the traditional land of the Mississaugas of the Credit, 
the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. Vancouver is on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. This is a production of Cited Media. We make other fine shows like Cited Podcast and Crackdown. You can find both of those and others wherever you find your podcasts.